Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Ian Burke. Ian is a professor in wheat science at Washington State University. His research program is focused on basic aspects of wheat biology and ecology with the goal of integrating such information into practical and economical methods of managing weeds in the environment. Ian teaches the undergraduate courses in weed science and cropping systems. Hello, Ian. Hello, Drew. So what are some of the weed control issues you've been dealing with these last few months? Well, I'm always amazed that I get to go back to prickly lettuce, which is one of the first weeds I began to work with here in the Pacific Northwest, and um, now 13 years on, and I still get a lot of questions about prickly lettuce. It's a persistent weed, and uh, it's difficult to control in just about every environment, and uh, that's one that we're seeing uh, continually being just a a nuisance. I know if anywhere you drive in eastern Washington, the, the roadsides are just loaded with, with prickly lettuce. What, what makes pretty prickly lettuce such a tough weed to control? Yeah, it's pretty adaptable. Uh, in fact, in my travels in the world, I've managed to, to take a picture of, of prickly lettuce in every country I've visited. It's just ubiquitous. It's just everywhere. Uh, it's a native of the eastern Mediterranean. So think countries like Turkey and Greece. In fact, uh, we think that prickly lettuce is the progenitor to cultivated lettuce. So oh, even though okay. they're considered separate species now, there's a little bit of prickly lettuce in every lettuce we eat. Uh, so prickly lettuce uh, can be a facultative winter annual. It can come up in the fall and, and uh, in a mild winter over winter and, and set seed in the spring. It appears to germinate all spring uh, and in, into the early summer and produce some amount of seed. The seed is windborne and can move great distances. I know I've had prickly lettuce appear in my gutter uh, many feet off the ground. And I know there was no prickly lettuce around my house setting seed because I'm a wheat scientist and I manage that stuff. <laughs> and so uh, it's a it's just a, got a, a set of attributes that make it a, a particularly difficult thing to manage. I think I've noticed uh, just walking around fields uh, this spring that there's prickly lettuce of all sizes. So obviously some of it came up last fall, some of it this winter, some of it's just coming up, which poses a bit of a control issue because the amount of herbicide you might need to control that thing that came up in the fall is different than what you might need for the spring. And Indeed. Uh, so what, what have you found to be some of the most effective approaches for managing prickly lettuce in, in wheat and other systems? So I, uh, I always try and remind growers that it has a different name. Uh, it's also called the compass plant, particularly uh, here now in late spring. Uh, you can see prickly lettuce germinate, and it, it, it germinates bolting. So when it germinates before the equinox, it usually forms a rosette, and it looks like every other little aster plant that we see, weed we see in the field. It, you know, the leaves are laying on the ground essentially, and when it germinates well after the equinox, it, it's bolting already when it comes out of the ground. Um, the, the day length triggers that 
bolting. And if you look at it carefully, you'll notice that the leaves are not um, held flat or, or, or facing up. They're actually um, turned 90 degrees to the stem and they orient themselves north and south so that the leaves are actually pointing north and south. We call it the compass plant because of that. And so uh, there are a number of herbicides that are pretty effective for, for managing prickly lettuce if you're using herbicides. But you have to understand that if you're just using a, a set of nozzles that point the spray straight down at the ground, you're trying to get the spray droplets to stick to the sides of the leaves. And so I re usually recommend growers, if they have a prickly lettuce is issue, switch nozzles out and use something that has some angle to it or, or, or angle their boom in some way. And they have to recognize that the leaves of the prickly lettuce are being held in a way that the spray droplets just aren't getting on. Okay. So Interesting. it's a different, sort of a different uh, approach to thinking about the problem. If you do have to reach into the herbicide toolbox, um, you know, the name of a few trade names, there's there's Husky and and the new Talonor. Um, and depending upon what system you're in, you know, some of the growth regulating herbicides uh, appear to be effective. There are pockets of 2,4-D resistance out there and, and where we see 2,4-D resistance occur. It's usually in a system where um, growers have been using glyphosate plus 2,4-D in a fallow situation, or they've been using low doses of 2,4-D in fallow or in um, CRP ground, and and that's just selected for a localized biotype that now doesn't really respond to the prickly lettuce. And in those instances, you really want to make sure you deplete the seed bank uh, and stay on top of it. The nice thing about prickly lettuce is in just a few short seasons, you can uh, really deplete the seed bank quite quickly. It, most of the stuff that falls as seed germinates pretty quickly okay. within that season. And so if you're successful for three or four seasons, you can usually see that the biotypes change over. Okay. And then uh, if I recall, prickly lettuce along with Russian thistle were uh, two of the weeds where uh, resistance to the ALS inhibitor uh, glean well, developed very quickly. So it's, uh, it also seems to be capable of developing, you mentioned 2,4-D, but also the ALS inhibitors. So that's another issue we have with that. But these current products, Husky, Talonor, still pretty effective on them. and yep, Appear to be pretty effective. Uh I've also had um, decent luck with Sharpen and uh, um, some of the other uh, PPO inhibitors, but you do have to, uh, again, you have to make sure you have good contact, uh, particularly when you're using something like Sharpen, you've got to make sure you cover those leaves because it's contact type herbicide and it doesn't translocate. And so if you're using those, if you're not thinking critically about how to cover those leaves up with droplets, you're, you're likely to, to see a, a just not a good outcome with the herbicide input. Uh, Prickly lettuce also appears to be pretty well adaptable to um, um, reduced or minimum tillage systems. When you introduce tillage, I, I typically see prickly lettuce sort of fall away. It, it just doesn't seem to respond to tillage as much. You mentioned those those chlorsulfuron group two herbicides, ALS inhibitors, and it's uh, another first of ours. The PMW is actually the first to to document and discover. ALS resistance, and it was in prickly lettuce, and it was actually pretty close to the to Pullman. It was just down in Lewiston that that first biotype was discovered. So you know, prickly lettuce has been around a long time. It's been adapting to many of our inputs for a long time, and will likely continue to do so. So you mentioned this, uh, how the plant changes um, architecture, I guess. Rosette, if it comes up prior, it would be the equinox or the solstice, so prior to 
what is it, when we go to March 30, 21st or whenever that is, if it comes up before that, it tends to be a rosette. After that, it tends to, so that also might explain why maybe you have differences in control because it's probably easier to cover that rosette than those plants that are now standing up and, and bolting. Yeah, and, I, and I, that's a, it's not something I've ever tested in field work, but um, intuitively it, it it appears to me that that the the bolting habit where the leaves are not held up for the for receipt of that herbicide spray that it just appears to be a critical um, factor in, in making sure we get good coverage. You just got to be cognizant of, of what the plant looks like. And you could say the same thing about Russian thistle with its tiny little leaves. You know, you want to make sure you cover yeah. that plant really well. And and uh, so droplet contact to the leaves is really critical. And whatever you can do to maximize that will likely help a lot yeah. in in achieving a good outcome. Could explain maybe why Roundup might be not real effective if you're using low rates and big droplets. It might not be the best approach to a, a plant like prickly lettuce. Prickly lettuce has a uh, an, another interesting attribute. It, it actually has a, the, among the highest quality rubber in the plant kingdom. Um, we did a little bit of work on that uh, early in my career here at Washington State University. And although we never really figured out how to milk the prickly lettuce, for the rubber, uh, we were able to, to find that it had very high quality rubber. I've, I've observed that glyphosate doesn't work very well on uh, many species that have uh, latex and rubber in their sap. Okay, um, and that that could include um, some of the um, morning glories, for example, uh, in the in the southeast. Not the kind of morning glory we have here. So the whenever you see that white sap, I typically tend to associate that with a um, reduced. Uh, efficacy of of glyphosate, and you want to add something in um, to the tank to control the the prickly lettuce in addition to the um, glyphosate. When you're using glyphosate plus 2,4-D, and the prickly lettuce is evolving or has evolved 2,4-D resistance, that also can manifest itself in this weird hardened off prickly lettuce that now doesn't respond anymore to systemic systemic herbicides. And so what we'll see is. Uh, Prickly lettuce that has swollen stems, uh, the leaves the leaves appear malformed, but it's all still green. And over time, they do eventually recover and produce new shoots and eventually seed. So they're using moisture. We know in that fallow situation. So when you see glyphosate and 2,4-D fail, probably because the 2,4-D has antagonized what little glyphosate activity there was, uh, you need to go back with a contact type herbicide instead of. Um, attempting to use more glyphosate in that situation, mm -hmm. so there's a, a there's some idiosyncrasies attributed to the the biology, the prickly lettuce, rubber, and latex, the shape and and how it form uh, holds its leaves. That um, took a little bit of thought to to just think of ways to approach to manage it. Okay, do you, do you see any new technologies come along to help us battle weeds like prickly lettuce and other weeds and fallow? I I do I, I uh, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, what I would call a weed sensing sprayer here last season, and we intend to expand that work here in the coming season. And the weed sensing sprayer, uh, you know, there's multiple companies that sell technology like that where the um, the sensor head can detect that there's something green in the field and activate the nozzle to spray. And that fundamentally transforms what you can do and the, tech the herbicide technologies you can deploy in fallow if you're dealing with prickly lettuce in fallow. And so uh, I encourage growers to, to take a look at, at those available technologies. Um, what it really fundamentally does is it, it changes the equation on, on 
the cost per acre. And um, typically a grower would only need to spray 20% of the acre if they could use this sort of technology. That would be the, the typical um, use. And so you, instead of spraying 100% at X rate, they could spray 20% at maybe a more elevated rate or with a, um, a number of other active ingredients in the tank to facilitate better control. And, and that uh, would be economically easy to achieve because you're not treating the entire acre, you're treating a very small portion of it. And so those sort of technologies, I think, will help us with weeds like prickly lettuce and Russian thistle, where um, we've been sort of relying on incrementally increasing our rates of a couple of relatively inexpensive herbicides. And now maybe these new technologies might help us. Yeah. Sounds like a really interesting technology that um, may really help us get out of this situation we're starting to run in with glyphosate resistance, uh, particularly in some of our fallow situations. What about uh, weed? I hear a lot about. I think a lot of growers probably read about it in their uh, uh, popular press magazines. Uh, Palmer amaranth and water hemp are seem to be taking over the country. Are they in Washington yet? And if they aren't, are they likely to come here? You think? To my knowledge, they're not in Washington yet, uh, and I hope it stays that way. Palmer amaranth is pretty well adapted to to the environment that would be present in the in the Columbia Basin. It's a, a native of New Mexico and Arizona, and it evolved to grow in those really dry um, environments. And when it spread into relatively more moist environments, areas like Georgia and the Mid-South, um, this is a plant that will grow two inches a day um, given ideal conditions. And so we have very nearly ideal conditions for its growth in the in the basin. And it would, it would be very damaging to crop rotations that would include um, potato, onion, corn. Uh, those are um, those are rotations that are pretty susceptible to to something like a palmer amaranth. And it's really expensive to manage, and it really makes a lot of seed. So it's it's in many ways it's a it's a it's nearly intractable where it does occur. It's really fundamentally changed the cropping systems where it's become resistant to glyphosate and it infests areas like where they grow cotton and peanut. So, um, to my knowledge, it's not here. Uh, we definitely need to keep it that way if it's ever discovered here. Um, I think that we need to make a strenuous effort to eradicate it. Um, I think it's being in the process of being listed as a noxious weed in this state, and it, it definitely should be. The benefit of having it uh, not present is that it really helps our seed industry out quite a bit because um, there's a growing uh, uh, interest in making sure that that the seed that's planted across the United States, like corn, that you know, we grow a lot of uh, corn for seed here in the state, that that corn seed is clean of any weed seed, including um, things like Palmer, particularly Palmer amaranth. Right. And so uh, being able to say that we don't have it is a real benefit to our industry. Okay. So not a problem yet. Could be in the basin, but probably because of its uh, warm season nature, probably not going to be a major weed problem in our winter wheat growing areas. I don't anticipate it being a real issue in the, the summer fallow areas. Um, I, and, you know, red root pigweed is here in the P&W, in the high rainfall zone, um, in, in certain areas in the intermediate rainfall zone and, and wherever red root pigweed can survive, Palmer amaranth can, but red root pigweed is, is a shadow of, of what it can do in, in Some more other. temperate climates. Yep. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming in today to share uh, what you've been thinking about and working on here. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Drew. 
Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.